everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. Cole, what's up, man? Doing great. Memorial Day Core Consult RX Podcast. Special edition. Special edition. And by special edition, we mean, well, regular nothing, edition. Pretty much basically the same podcast. <laughs> the uh, hide and cover from the um, incoming tropical storm podcast. Yes. Maybe we should do some, you know, some uh, readiness, some preparedness advice. We should have done that. If anyone is qualified to talk about that, I think it's definitely <laughs> it's probably us. Probably us, right? We are basically like survival experts <laughs> when it comes to the. I mean, we've evacuated. I don't know if you evacuated. I've evacuated like twice in the last few years, I feel like. I, I didn't. So I was going to. That was one of those idiots on the news. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to stay here and ride it out. <laughs> Surfing on the nasty sewage water as it's filling up Charleston. Yep. That's That was more my style. <laughs> right. I didn't do that, but I did stay behind, yeah. and luckily it ended up at least where we were, not being uh, as bad as they originally projected. Yeah, surfing in the sewage water not recommended. Yeah, which by the way, I see a lot of people evacuating Florida, but apparently there was some really bad flooding in Maryland like today. Really, really bad. Yeah, hmm. it's flash flooding. I don't know. Not Florida, but yeah, Florida's been hit a lot lately. It's yeah, been, been rough. The Gulf. Anyways. Anyways, back to your weather. <laughs> You you hadn't talked about the weather in probably a couple episodes. I know it's been a little while, and it's been it's been eating at you. I well, can tell. I know we got a tropical storm coming. I can't talk about. Yeah, it. Yeah, you can't not talk about. I the don't weather. remember the name of it though. Mm. You don't know it, do you? Not a true uh, weather fan. No, no. no, I do know. It. I'm just not going to tell you. <laughs> Dang suspense the hey, whole yeah, time. The whole time. So what are we right. talking about? So this is how today's preparation went for mm-hmm. the podcast. We sat down about five minutes before we were supposed <laughs> to record. And we were like, what do you want to talk about? I have no idea. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> and so we're just going to kind of uh, we're gonna talk. freestyle today. Yeah, we usually do a little more preparation, but maybe maybe we actually did take a little break today because it was Memorial Day. Yes, Or, or did we not take breaks? No, we took a break. I'm not going to lie. I took a little bit of a break today. Good. But yeah, we'll, um, we are going to talk about some general depression. We've talked about this a little bit probably in the past. Just touched on it. Um, but we're going to run through some... Some uh, general depression, treatment guidelines, yeah. things like that. Focus on STARDI trial and kind of what it showed us and talk about the difference between, we'll mainly be focusing on what you would do in the primary care setting because if you've had a psych rotation or if you work in psychiatry, you know, they do a little bit different stuff because they, like they, they know what they're doing. Yeah, a little they're, more they're the experts. They're the experts. So we'll, we'll, we'll focus on STARDI and kind of where first line major depression uh, treatment goes. But before that, we're going to talk a little bit about evidence-based medicine in general, right? Yeah. So I just went to a uh, evidence-based medicine conference here in Charleston, South Carolina, put on by Dr. Wayne Wirt and Dr. Scott Bragg. And uh, they basically have speakers come in from all different areas. Its main uh, audience is primary care physicians, pharmacists, uh, nurse practitioners, and PAs. Um, but they bring in all kinds of different speakers from different areas of specialties. And uh, we'll go over you know, different trials, evidence-based medicine, aspects of each type of disease state. Um, and one of the, I guess the, the big things that kind of has come up um, while I was kind of watching this conference and then talking with people afterwards or seeing how people would answer questions is, is basically, you know, is evidence-based medicine really all that important? Why do we talk about it? Why is, why is it a term that we even use? Um, and then how do we actually apply it to our daily practice if you yeah. will yeah and speaking of why is it a term 
it actually is not an old term. It's very new, even though evidence-based medicine or the idea behind it is not a new concept. We've always wanted to treat patients, not always, I should say, um, in, in the era of modern medicine, we want to treat patients based on something that we have seen in some type of, of experiment or some type of study that it works. The term evidence-based medicine was coined really by JAMA um, or in JAMA. It showed up in JAMA in 1992, uh, and the guy who coined it, his name was Gordon Guyatt. And so it's relatively new. It was in an article called The Rational Clinical Examination. Before that, there were people who were obviously practicing it and pushing it forward, but that actual term, EBM, was coined only about, what was that, 26 years ago or so? Something like that. Yeah, it's older than me. Hmm. Mm. You just let on how young you are. I know. I just got thrown out there. I don't want people to know. So I'm also that young. Forget I said that. <laughs> I'm also 25. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, anyways, but yeah, you know, I think that uh, it's something, it's, it's interesting to me because, and I've run into this with clinicians who have been practicing for a long time. They've been very successful in their practice. But, you know, sometimes I've noticed that they've sometimes resort to treatments that they've just always done. Um, the biggest, I guess, example of this I can use is hydrochlorothiazide. All right, and there's probably some of you listening that go, yep, you use it all the time, dispense it all the time and for the pharmacists out there. But is that the best, I guess, option if you're going to use a thiazide diuretic? Right. Um, my, arg- blood pressure. Yeah. my argument would be uh, no. And, and I like this argument because we actually have a lot of data that backs backs it up and shows an example of why we should be using evidence-based medicine. And why um, we should be using alternatives because there's a, a distinct lack of evidence when it comes to HTTZ, right? Right, exactly. Um, so I guess starting off, if you know, we'll use the example of the accomplished trial, which you've probably heard us talk about. Um, but one of the things that the accomplished trial did is they, they took a, a group of patients, they gave them, all of them got benazepril, the ACE inhibitor. And so one of the, the questions that I'll get from my students or from other practitioners is, you know, what is our next add-on therapy? Like, what's our next, you know, drug that we're going to add on? And so what this trial looked at was they took benazepril and added on HCTZ for one group, and then they added on amlodipine to the other group, and then compared them head-to-head. Now, I know when I, when I first started hearing about this study, like when I was in school, um, I kind of assumed that the amlodipine benazepril, because I would hear people say that's a better option. Mm-hmm. Um, I just assumed that they lowered the blood pressure to a, a greater extent, and you know that's why we got some of the results that we do. But one of what we realized when we actually compared the two groups is that we didn't have a difference in blood pressure lowering. And so to me, that's one of the biggest, uh, I guess, important factors of the study, because one thing that I'll hear is, well, as long as we're getting the blood pressure lowered, what does it matter? Right. Right. I mean, if I give them- I think that's a really common thing for people to assume in, in uh, physiologically speaking, it makes sense. Right. right. So it comes down to other aspects of the drugs that are separate from just blood pressure lowering that we may not be aware of, or we are, and they just play a different role than we traditionally think. Right. Exactly. And, and so in the case of Accomplish, what we saw is that the amlodipine combo had a greater reduction in the primary outcome composite that they were looking for. So cardiovascular events, so you know, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, um, and CV death from CV causes. And so that was significantly different with a number needed to treat of 45. 
which is great. Yeah. Um, then when we kind of break that apart, look at some of the individual differences, um, we saw that fatal and non-fatal MI was significantly different. Um, revascularization was lowered. Um, we also have secondary outcomes uh, such as looking at all-cause, um, excuse me, not all-cause, uh, death from cardiovascular causes plus non-fatal MI and strokes, so another composite that was shown to be significant. Um, and then composite of cardiovascular events, which is a whole huge list of things, um, also significant as well. And so the takeaway for me anyway is that, yes, you are getting the same blood pressure lowering with either agent, but what did you actually achieve right. in the long run? Because right. I always say treat the outcomes, and, and when I say me, I mean a lot of people, not just me. <laughs> but uh, I always invented this term. But um, you know, I'll typically say to students, treat the outcome, not the number. Right. Because what, what good is it if we get the patient's blood pressure lowered in clinic and it's lower and they're, you know, on the surface good to go, right. but 10 years later have a fatal MI. Right. Because why do we treat blood pressure in the first place? Not just because they can say, oh, my blood pressure is lower and I don't have a headache or whatever. It's to prevent really primarily cardiovascular outcomes. There's a lot of other things that can happen, but cardiovascular is the main thing. So in Accomplish, all these patients were high risk for cardiovascular events. Uh, 50 to 60 and two um, big risk factors or over 60 years with at least one big risk factor, those being diabetes. So this included diabetes patients, um, heart failure, peripheral artery disease, CKD, uh, previous um, CBA, um, or acute coronary syndrome, any of those that are putting these patients at high risk. So specifically in that patient, which there are a lot of them who also have hypertension, this is where you really want to consider where we're going to get the best decrease in events long-term when it comes to the heart. And it looks like HCTZ is not really getting us there. Exactly. And, you know, the other thing is HCTZ really doesn't have any good outcome data, period. No. They never really use that one, in, you know, in combination or alone to show that it can reduce cardiovascular events. We know that it obviously lowers blood pressure. Yes. It However, again— Which some would argue not very well also but others would say they use it all the time and it of course lowers blood pressure but you know and, and i think that one of the arguments that i'll hear is well if the we know what causes things like heart failure and um, put you at risk for things like stroke and, and mi is an elevated blood pressure over time um, however that doesn't that still doesn't account for studies like this one and others that show that if you use an evidence-based medication um, it, it can change the outcome. So it's it's blood pressure lowering, but there's also something else going on with the mechanism, like Cole was saying, that is playing a secondary factor that is that is helping reduce these events. And, you know, and if we look at like the primary outcome, for instance, for Accomplish, the there was a there was a um, an event percentage of 9.6%. So 9.6% of the patients in the amlodipine combo had an event. 11.8% had an event in the HTTD group. You know, when we're looking at that value, it doesn't seem all that impressive, right? right. Not a, still, still a low percentage in mm -hmm. both groups. So I'm not saying if if you are treating with HTTZ, you are necessarily the worst person ever and right. not doing your job. You know, that's by no means what I'm saying. However, you know, when we look at number needed to treat and we see that we have a 40, you know, number needed to treat 45, you know, if you think about 45 people to prevent one extra event, whether that's fatal or non-fatal at all, now that's that's a that's less than two uh, days of clinic. 
Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at how many people are being treated for blood pressure, I mean, that's crazy. Significant, yeah. yeah, I mean, you could be, if that was a scratch off, you'd be planning all the time. Right, and I, I think it goes to a bigger point, too, that, of course, HGTZ, it's not like it does nothing. It does something. It lowers blood pressure, which is good. That's better than having high blood pressure. Um, and it may decrease events as well. We just don't have data saying that it, it necessarily does, especially not that it does better than something else like the combination with amlodipine or even with a different thiazide diuretic. So, you know, the argument really is it's cheap. And that, that's that's the argument for a lot of these medications that um, will be prescribed very commonly just because they're cheap and we've been using them for a long time. Uh, but it's it's worth looking into other options, especially in this instance, because there are other cheap thiazide diuretics that may be better alternatives. And we've definitely talked about this before. Uh, but potentially adapamide is on the $4 list at a lot of places, and then chlorphalladone is reasonably cheap as well, uh, would be a reasonable alternative, or just using amlodipine, which is really almost just as cheap as HCTZ. So something to consider. Yeah, and the other thing to consider, too, that's kind of interesting is we only dose amlodipine. Most people only dose it once a day. But if we actually right. think about like the half-life um, or even the duration of how long the drug lasts, the half-life is only... You know, they give a range, if you look on like Lexicomp, of like 6 to 15 hours. Um, usually we think of it being about 12 hours on average. Um, it's, you know, there's, it's one of those things that when, if we're going to dose it according to the half-life, you really would want to give it at least twice a day anyway, um, which we almost never do. Now, things like chlorothaladone and adapamide have much longer half-lives. Um, chlorothaladone has an even longer half-life than 24 hours. Um, adapamide's right about 24. But, um, you know, it's kind of interesting that we don't ever dose to the half-life with, with that agent. Yeah. Um, that comes up frequently with blood pressure medications, right? Yeah. Well, and like things like an ACE or an ARP, so like lisinopril has a 12 hour half-life as well, but the duration of the effects lasts a little bit longer. Right. Um, and so we can kind of get away with it, but there are some people that I've seen dosing it twice a day. Um, Valsartan, for instance, is an ARB often gets dosed once a day, but it's only been studied twice a day, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. If you look at any of the clinical trials, um, it's listed as being twice a day. Yeah. Metoprolol tartrate. Some people dose that once a day. Yeah. I've seen that too, which yeah. that doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, there's just definitely thing times where we're not using the kinetics. Um, and I'm not saying that there's never a reason for that. Right. Um, they, they may be very specific. There's always exceptions to the rule. There is. Um, but I will say that HCTZ just without the the evidence to back it up as far as you know the the risk of reducing an event in the future I, I don't see a purpose when we have all these other agents available to use it in the first place yeah it's because yeah like you said there's other options if there weren't any other options yeah you know as, as far as if you just really want a diuretic class in there but there are there's there other are. options um you know some of the things like uh all hat has showed yeah. um, benefit with chlorothaladone right um, as a single also, agent compared right. to ACE and yeah. Uh, SHEP, we've also yep. seen um, in elderly patients benefit with chlorothaladone. Um, for endapamide, we have high vet which mm-hmm. was studied in um, veterans 80 to 100 years old. Elderly patients, yeah. Um, and then uh, also we have like progress, yep. which was post-stroke, post-stroke and yeah. that showed a benefit when you add uh, endapamide to an ACE inhibitor right. that you have benefit post-stroke. So there's always these, these big trials that have been done that shows that these have evidence versus... HCTZ, which doesn't have that. Yeah. Um, so I just think that uh, it's it's definitely an interesting debate that, and something I'm surprised that if you can give somebody 
something that's evidence-based, why stick with HTTZ? And I'm sure another reason is because it's in combination with so many things, super easy to just prescribe a cheap combination pill and they only have to take one thing. It's, it's very enticing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is granted, true. Lotrell is cheap and it's also a combination, but right. I, I, I can see the draw of that. Yeah, that's true. I can definitely see that as well. But, you know, I would argue that uh, it would be worth having the conversation at least with the patient that because the indapamide is a very small pill. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be, it'd be worth at least bringing up with see if they're willing to take two different medications. And um, then maybe even you can split up the timing of them as well if you want to get real evidence-based mm-hmm. and maybe dose the ACE inhibitor at night for those potential non-dippers mm-hmm. and get real fancy with it. Yeah, a little MAPEC trial. Yes, MAPEC. That's also how they dosed it for HOPE Yeah. Um, and MicroHOPE yeah. when they dosed the Ramipril, dosed it at night. The RAS system is more active, active. at night. Mm-hmm. So maybe more effective to... Give the aces and arms at nighttime yeah. and give the other ones in the morning. Dropping all sorts of evidence-based tips. Now. Yeah. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. <laughs> Better be, have a pen and pencil ready. Pen yeah. and paper and a pencil. Yeah, exactly. All of them. All of them. <laughs> number two. Number two. <laughs> number two pencil. They still have like numbers I don't know. I, I think a lot of the mechanical pencils have number two lead. I would think. That's what they've said. Even though on like standardized tests, you have to have the actual yellow number two thing. I wonder what... Well, I did when I was a kid. I guess they use computers now. <laughs> Maybe I am old. <laughs> Back when I took the SAT. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. That's it's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a little while. Yeah, I'm glad. I don't want to take the SAT right now. No. Probably wouldn't do too good. I'm about to take a standardized test, which I do not want to take. Yeah. But anyways. Anyways. So yeah, that the accomplished trial, really good example of the importance of evidence-based medicine and how to... Which, which this is an, a, a particularly new trial it came out in 2008. We talked about all hat that was 2002. Um, so the evidence it's been there. It just takes a little while to get disseminated to get yeah disseminated and for people to change practice if they think it's worth changing practice. We've talked about I think podcast numero uno was the ACCHA guidelines mm-hmm. and they're preferring chlorthaladone as the the thiazide diuretic of choice um, in their guideline, which is you know in a lot of ways, based on kind of what we talked about. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, you know, the other thing is I, I stumbled across this the other day, but I was looking at um, UpToDate and looking at the authors of the resistant hypertension um, article that's on UpToDate. I was looking through some of their stuff, just looking to see what they added on as fourth line uh, agents. And they were saying one of the first things before they even add a fourth line is that they will change HCTZ to chlorothalidone or endapamide. Yeah. is one of their first things that they do. Um, I need to go back and see if they also put that for regular primary hypertension right but i thought that was pretty interesting that even they're acknowledging the importance of the thiazide one being significantly more effective than the other yeah yeah um what else should we give another example of something or move on i think that was a great example we can move on to depression but i mean evidence-based medicine it's there that's what we did i mean that's that's the whole reason we started this podcast isn't it whole reason we come on here and yap a little bit Plus, we really like hearing ourselves talk. Yeah, we love it. It's great. <laughs> no, but in, those, in all seriousness, that is definitely why we kind of brought it up because I wanted to be able to talk about it in a practical sense. And I'm just really, really surprised of how many people don't, yeah, don't either don't care about it or I guess are just not familiar with yeah the the big these big landmark trials. Yeah, and it's not a, I mean, it's not a knock against them. You know, there's all yeah. there. I mean, because especially physicians, everybody likes to knock physicians, but they have just so an immense amount of things that they have to be concerned about. Um, so that's why hopefully pharmacists and other providers can be there to show them what evidence is coming out and 
you know, maybe help them along. And if not, hopefully we'll cover it on the podcast. Right. And you guys and will. And then just every physician in the country will be listening to our podcast. <laughs> Literally everyone. Every single one. <laughs> We're huge. Come on. Uh, what is that? American Academy of Physicians? Yeah. Put yeah. us on. Put us on. <laughs> yeah. No. No. We tried. They said no. They said no. All right. So talking about general depression. Yep. Um, definitely something that is, so you will deal with this at some point or another if you're in, um, especially if you're in primary care. Oh yeah. Um, and like Cole said at the beginning, we're going to kind of go over this in a way that is geared more towards, you know, primary care, family medicine type things. We're not obviously speaking to someone who's a psychiatry right. expert because I know they not... like to start with some different things than what what Stardy might say, and they take a lot of other factors into account. But yeah, I think this is a reasonable. Um, guide for stepwise approach to treating general depression. And, and the, before you even get to the treatment part of it, um, one thing that I think is important, especially in a primary care setting where you may not be as familiar with seeing these patients that are clinically depressed day in, day out, but um, using some sort of a way to quantify this, I guess, ranking of depression or if the person is depressed in the first place. Um, that's one thing that I've, I've seen a lot of places will not do is, you know, they will, they'll talk to the patient. The patient says that they, you know, have symptoms of depression. They get started on an antidepressant, and then that's kind of that. They just ask the person from then on out yeah. how you feel, things like that. Um, but having one of the uh, you know, questionnaires that we have available to us I think is really a really good way of quantifying the progress or lack of progress and figuring out when we need to you know, augment or replace or whatever we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one I like a lot is PHQ-9, um, and that was put out by, I believe, um, Pfizer has the copyright on that one. Yeah. I have to double check for sure, but um, that's available as well. Um, PHQ-9 is uh, basically nine questions that the patient can answer, zero through three, um, zero being not at all, and then three being nearly every day. And then they will total up their their answers and then they get a grade at the end to see you know, how severe the depression is. Um, it's something that you can give a patient in the, the you know very early stages. Um, there's also a PHQ-2, I believe it's called, which is two questions, and that kind of helps to go through the questions and see if the patient uh, has any signs of early depression. Um, from there, you can go on to the 9 if you have some suspicions. But um, you know, this is something that needs to be given to patients so that they can um, answer these questions and give their opinion without having to just arbitrarily describe how they're feeling and um, also as a way to record progress. Right. And the PHQ-2 is easy. You could even, I mean, just ask them to kind of the two questions, which is, um, are you having little interest or pleasure in doing things, your normal things, and are you feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? And they'll rate it on a scale from zero to three if you actually hand it to them. But it's it's a very easy way to gauge it and see if you want to do the full PHQ-9 and diagnose them and and pursue treatment and we're going to talk about uh, we're going to focus really specifically on treatment today when usually we'll do like more of an overview talking about symptoms and things Um, i do just want to mention that cognitive behavioral therapy is a very important um, part of treatment which is recommended in almost all instances Um, but we realize that it is incredibly hard to get patients to follow up with cbt and psychotherapy of that sort It, it it helps in a lot of disease states especially when it comes to psychiatric disease states but patients just do not follow up they want a medication so anything you can do to encourage them in that way would be helpful right all right so 
jump into Star D. Let's do it. All right. So Star D was is actually a really cool setup. The way they they brought these patients in and they had organized four different steps of therapy. Mm-hmm. They would start with the step. They would see who would get to remission, um, and then then if not, they would either move on to step two um, or you know and reevaluate and move on from there. And the, the patients who reached remission then then were just uh, monitored from there. Um, but it really does paint a good picture for those of us who are not psych experts um, on where to kind of take things if the person is not seeking out a referral. Right. Um, so what they did is they started off with citalopram. Mm-hmm. So everyone got citalopram, um, SSRI, and um, were then assessed to see if they they met remission mm-hmm. just on that drug. And if, if you've heard SSRIs being first line for major depression, a lot of that is based on this trial, starting with that. And, you know, the other thing is, I, I like that. It doesn't have to be citalopram. No, you know, if, if they have some sort of a, a arrhythmia where we would be worried about, a like, a prolongation of the QTC interval, um, that's not as huge of a deal as some other drugs. Um, I think sometimes pharmacist painting is a bigger picture, you know, bigger deal than it really is. Um, but if they're on multiple drugs that can prolong the QTC interval and they have, you know, history of something that would be uh, a adverse effect to watch out for and be right. aware of. Yeah, definitely if they have a history. And the biggest thing is just hopefully the physician is monitoring EKGs every once in a while to, to see if it's prolonged or if they're concerned about it. But you know, the big thing with depression that I think is interesting is you really, really have to look at patient-specific factors. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you had a patient that is, let's say, you're very worried about non-adherence because they just, you can't get them to actually follow up. Um, maybe they skip several doses of their medication throughout the month. Um, you know, you'd be really worried about someone like that if they were skipping, especially multiple days in a row of an antidepressant them falling into like discontinuation syndrome right especially with ssris right um so in that particular patients you know i would or patient i would really recommend using something like fluoxetine Mm -hmm. it's got a nine-day half-life on it and there is no like titration period or anything like that so that would that would be one that i would shoot for for that particular patient because then you wouldn't be worried if they do stop it them having exacerbating symptoms discontinuation syndrome whatever right and that's in stark contrast to paroxetine or Paxil, which many consider worst in class as far as the SSRIs go, uh, has the most side effects, the most drug interactions, the worst sexual dysfunction. It's pregnancy category D, if we're still allowed to use those categories, as opposed to the rest, which are category C. It's got the shortest half-life, so it has the worst discontinuation syndrome. So yeah, if you don't have to use it, we generally try to stay away from Paxil if we can. And, you know, if you have a patient that, let's say, is uh, has cardiovascular um, disease in the past, um, especially patients that have, like, um, a history of uh, coronary, acute coronary syndrome or MI, um, we could potentially use uh, sertraline in mm-hmm. those patients. We have evidence from SADHART from back in 2002 that shows that um, it's safe to use in that patient population post-MI. And, you know, that's that's another one we could potentially use and that STAR-D also used in their Step 2 approach yep but um yeah definitely looking at it from a a patient um point of view very patient specific is really important because there's not any good evidence that shows that one is going to work better than the other um for every single patient right that's almost never the case in in psych meds right now if they do reach remission 
the idea is to treat for about a year. And I think the recommendation for that comes from Stardy as well. They did a 12 month follow up, saw how they were doing and potentially taper them off the antidepressant because like a lot of the things we've talked about with GERD and um, other disease states that aren't necessarily chronic, if you don't have to, you can, if you don't have to keep it on forever, the idea, the other one I was thinking of was um, insomnia. You can taper them off and it's really just for a time. It's not meant to be um, forever unless they have recurrent depression. And, you know, the other thing it would be is titrating these patients up to a proper dose. Yeah. So, for instance, like sertraline, 200 milligrams is the, the max, the kind of the gold dose. And you see a lot of patients stopping at 50 to 100 and then they may be having other medications added on to that or being switched because they're not working. If the patient can tolerate it, we probably should be maximizing the doses to where they've been studied at. Yeah, because they are reasonably safe, especially SSRIs. There are some drug interactions. I mentioned sexual dysfunction, which I think is important to mention to patients because if they don't realize that's a side effect and something like that starts happening, then they're probably going to stop it and they're at risk for discontinuation syndrome. Um, one that's lower risk for that would be Wellbutrin, and we'll talk about that in the follow-up steps. But for the most part, these are considered pretty safe and pretty effective medications. Exactly. So we want to take over step two? Sure. So yeah, step one, generally start with an SSRI. And like we said, in other psychiatric settings, they might start with something else, a Remeron or even Wellbutrin or an SNRI-like Effexor, depending on the patient. Um, but if you're following STAR-D, they would just go with an SSRI for a regular patient if it fit them. Step two, they would either augment or they'd switch. So they would either add on to this italopram, bupropion, buspirone, or cognitive behavioral therapy by itself. Or they would completely switch to a different medication, either bupropion, sertraline, uh, Effexor, which is venlafaxine, or just cognitive behavioral therapy. And they saw some really good results from these first two steps. Uh, in step one, there's about a 37% rate of remission, uh, which was higher, uh, statistically significantly higher than step two, where they saw about a 30 to 31% remission rate with uh, those treatment regimens. So that's that's pretty solid. Absolutely. And it's interesting, too, like the, with the, what they use as far as the augmentation. Mm-hmm. Um, so like bupropion, for instance. You know, with citalopram, you're covering the serotonin aspect. Bupropion, you know, it's a weak inhibitor of norepinephrine and dopamine. Mm-hmm. So you're covering your three neurotransmitters that are we most likely think of when we think of depression. Um, and so you're covering your basis with those three drugs. Um, also, the, the uh, buspirone is, is working on serotonin as well. Um, it also has some dopamine um, receptor binding activity, but you're working on from a separate pathway, if you will. Um, and then CBT obviously is completely separate than medication altogether. But you know they they've tried to augment with these drugs that um, would hopefully enhance, I guess, the effects and enhance the likelihood of reaching these these um, uh, these outcomes, these neurotransmitters that were potentially low yeah. um, by giving different drugs. You you most likely wouldn't see like two SSRIs put together, um, things like that for risk of serotonin syndrome. Right. Um, the other thing is this is another aspect of where these questionnaires would come into play. Because let's say you gave someone a PHQ-9, mm-hmm. they scored um, really high, meaning that they're depressed, and you know you see some decline in that score, but not quite to the point of remission. You know, that may 
play an argument into whether you should be augmenting or stopping the medication. Right. Right. Because if you see it, if you're seeing improvement, but just not as much improvement as you wanted to, that would probably be a case for keeping on the current therapy and then adding on to that. Versus if you're on citalopram, let's say you see zero difference whatsoever, probably a good idea to go ahead and switch. Switch it up. So that's another thing that the questionnaires really do play play a role in if you're not uh, seeing these patients on a daily basis. Right. Or if they're having undesirable side effects. So SSRIs can cause a little bit of weight gain. And if that is something that's going to cause this patient to stop taking it, you might go with something that's more weight neutral, like bupropion would be a reasonable option in that case. Right. Did you go over the four uh, switch strategies? Uh, yes. Okay. So after that, um, those didn't work. They were switched to step three. Um, they had two augmentation strategies in step three. The patients could stay on whatever they were on currently and then had, have either lithium or cytomel T3 um, added on to as well. And then for switch, they could be switched to neither nor tryptoline which is a tricyclic antibiotic, or uh, I almost said antibiotic, antidepressant, <laughs> um, or mirtazapine. And then again, um, step three had a uh, had a remission achievement rate of about 13.7%, mm-hmm. um, and you know also completely separate types of classes of medications um, in both groups, augmentation and switching. It's yeah. kind of interesting on that. I feel like they really started pulling stuff out of the hat here. So lithium, it can be used for augmenting major depression, Starting to use T3, there's some evidence behind uh, thyroid hormones, but that would be kind of interesting. And then the TCAs are known more for their side effects. Um, so, I, you know, I guess maybe a third line. I, I, I would probably be in favor of trying a few different combinations with potentially safer medications before going to that. But uh, Rimeron is definitely a reasonable option. A lot of people will try that first line um, for a few reasons. One, it's dosed at night and frequently helps people sleep which if you get patients' depression under control, hopefully that will improve their sleep, just generally speaking. For, but for somebody who has really refractory insomnia, that might could help. Also for patients who uh, weight gain is an issue as far as their underweight. So you want them to gain weight, Remeron will increase appetite, and that might be a consideration in that patient who you, who's skinny, um, potentially has a history of anorexia, you might consider Remeron in that patient. Yep. Um, and kind of going back to step two, if you have a patient that is overweight, um, that's trying to lose weight but having a hard time doing so, bupropion yeah. may be a good option for yeah. that patient. Um, for those of you who don't know, bupropion is one of the components of Contrave, yes. the weight loss medication. Yep. So it does have some weight loss data and um, probably a good option for someone like that. But yes, mirtazapine definitely for gaining weight would right. be good. Right. And then they would go to step four. So the, the last step, if the patient was still refractory, they had a similar, about 13% efficacy rate with this, but they'd go with tranalcipramine or the combination of Effexor and Remeron, which isn't there a like street name or common name for that combination? So I don't know how like you knew well, that? unique this is or like how like just completely slang and never use this. I don't hang out with the psych people enough. We'll have to ask one. <laughs> but um, California rocket fuel. <laughs> is apparently the the slang term for using venlafaxine and mirtazapine together. Sounds good to me. Um, it definitely has a cool ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I looked through real briefly like some forums, um, forums and things like that online, and there's definitely a lot of people that are referring to it as that. Um, I'd be curious to see how often that's used, um, or that term rather is used in clinical practice. But um, 
definitely uh, is is a good option as well, um, and seem to seem to help the patients in the STAR D trial. Yeah, um, about thirteen percent of patients who had not reached remission from the first three steps um, got to remission after using step four. So all in all, you know, you're looking at about two thirds of these patients reaching remission with one of the options that were yeah. that were given. Augmenting, switching, adding on stuff. It's it's very patient specific, just like bipolar. Um, so this is unipolar depression that we're talking about today. But bipolar depression is similar, uh, or bipolar disorder in general is similar. You don't know what's going to work. You try a lot of stuff until something works. The only difference with major depression is that hopefully it doesn't have to be lifelong. You may be able to titrate them off of it. And, you know, the other thing is th- this is only a, like a skeleton. You know, there's so many different oh, yeah. options we use now, antipsychotics. Oh, yeah. A lot of um, new stuff coming out, new yeah, SSRIs, new SNRIs. So, you know, it's definitely something that there's a lot of options, but I guess I, what I like about this is, one, thinking about whether you need to augment or switch, thinking about the mechanism of action, mm-hmm. thinking about the side pharmacokinetics and side effects of these drugs to see how they can interact and how they can be patient-specific, and, you know, really understanding the true, like, pharmacology of these meds is super important. Um, and then, you know, not just for drug-drug interactions, but all that, but really for actually helping the patient meet remission, you don't want to think about these drugs as, oh, it's an SSRI, they're all the same. Right. Because they're very much not. Right. Um, kind of like our hypertension meds like thiazide diuretics yeah. that we mentioned. Bring it all back around. <laughs> <laughs> Plan that perfectly. Perfectly. Yeah, it was all intentional. <laughs> But that's, you know, that's really important is looking at these drugs. We know drug classes, but don't look at them as a, you know, a, you know, class in and of itself that they're all interchangeable, really agent specific for the particular patient. And there's actually a million examples of that. Um, Fluoroquinolones would be a good example. Mm -hmm. Some cover different things. Some penetrate different parts of the body. Some have different side effects than others. Yeah. And And I think, I think, you know, with antibiotics, it's one thing, like, I think a lot of times, People can get their heads around around right. that, it's but like, oh, that covers pseudomonas, but this doesn't cover pseudomonas, right? right. Yeah. You know, and, and you know that's definitely a, I guess, a hard thing when for students to learn. Like, okay, well, carbapenems, but we know erdapenem doesn't cover right. pseudomonas. So, like something like that, that could be just, it's just like pure memorization. But looking at like hypertension, um, you know, dyslipidemia is another one with statins. Mm-hmm. Not all statins are created equal, or, or even. Um, dyslipidemia drugs in general it's not all about getting the numbers down right their statins have something that they do more than these other drugs that helps long term so i I think understanding the pharmacology is is really really important yeah and and not just having this i think that's what separates people who have like the superficial knowledge of the medications versus really kind of going to that next level of treatment is understanding the the medicinal chemistry if you will behind uh, these drugs and which ones play a better role in, in that particular patient. Yeah, I think it's really important. It takes time, takes a lot of effort, but and some of it doesn't always make sense. Maybe they act the exact same way and they produce the exact same um, tangible effect, but long-term outcomes data is different. Like HCTZ. Like HCTZ. You don't always know why. <laughs> yep. Don't always know why. I did want to mention um, tranalcipramine was in the step four of the Star D. That's an MAOI monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Also one that we would really reserve because of side effects. Hypertensive crisis being one. Uh, Tyramine-containing foods can induce a hypertensive crisis. No cheese. Like cheese and wine we were talking about before. (laughs) No cheese if you're on a channel. Gosh. The worst. That'd be terrible. 
But yeah, I think um, maybe that, good for a lactose intolerant patient. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a drug class we don't see too often anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot better options now, but it was still used. Yeah, it's still used every once in a while. But yeah, so good stuff. Got anything else? No, I think uh, I think we covered kind of what we set out to do. Yeah, did five we, minutes before did we beat the HCTZ horse to death this episode. Probably. <laughs> and so, then beat it again and beat it again. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, and I, it came up because I've had a couple conversations, uh, with people recently who, um, basically just told me, well, I don't understand what the point is. Who cares? Of who- all the recommendations, like in med recs that I, that I see to make, I feel like HCTZ comes up more than anything else. Yeah. I think it's just so ubiquitous. Hypertension is so uh, common that HCTZ comes up all the time. Mm-hmm. So figure we do this podcast and at least discuss it. Atenolol comes up too. Don't even get a start on Atenolol. We'll save that for a different one. Hmm. Or do you want to talk about it? Yeah, we could talk about Atenolol it's, very quickly. Similar, it's a similar situation. Yeah, so real quick, and I have another like flash briefing that's available on iTunes um, that discusses this. I think it's called like Harm with Old Atenolol. Okay, that's what it's called. O-L, um, high, high comma, as some people would call it. Yeah, if you will. <laughs> high comma. But... Basically, what it showed, um, it was a big meta-analysis that uh, was done back in, it was Lancet 2004, um, had a total of 17,000, over 17,000 patients in it, and looked at nine different trials. Um, the first thing that they looked at was atenolol versus placebo. Um, when they compared all-cause mortality um, against placebo, there was no difference. Um, cardiovascular mortality, no difference. MI, no difference. Stroke, no difference compared to placebo. So all those uh, um, all those outcomes compared directly to placebo, you might as well just not give them anything. Um, obviously, we do know that atenolol will lower blood pressure, um, but you're not stopping the outcome, which is the most important thing. Um, the other thing that they looked at was atenolol versus other antihypertensives, and they saw that in regards to all-cause mortality, they actually had worse outcomes when you were using atenolol mm. versus another agent. Number mm. needed a harm of 111 for mm. all-cause all mortality. <laughs> wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. And so, you know, it's one of those things that um, there's not really any good studies. There was the HEP trial. Um, not SHEP? Not SHEP. Well, SHEP used atenolol as well, but SHEP was also started with chlorthalidone. Right. Um, but HEP was a, the, I think, precursor to SHEP, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, and that one did show a little bit of a benefit when you use atenolol. But there's been um, countless I, others. Countless others. And I think the, aten- the atenolol showed a reduction in stroke. Um, so I think that was the big outcome of that one. Huh. But, um, you know, other than that, there's not really any good evidence for atenolol or other beta blockers, for that matter, used in primary hypertension. Right. It really is. It, it used to be used all the time, but now it's really a third line at best uh, these days, if not a fourth line. Um, and, but, constant, and what's odd is like when we think of like combination drugs, atenolol is one of the only drugs in combination with chlorthalidone yeah. instead of HCTZ. Uh, Isn't dog- there a combination of like amlodipine and atorvastatin or something mm-hmm. like that? How, um, how random is that? What is, uh, I cannot think of. Ex- uh, it's not X-Forge, is it? No. No, I can't remember what it is either, but um, I'm sure we could find it in two seconds. You know, Atenolol went on back order earlier this year, late last year, and I was almost like extremely happy about it. But man, people love their Atenolol Mm -hmm. because they were just freaking out about it. Goodness gracious. Agreed. Yeah, people were quite upset. Cadouette. 
Cadouette or Cad- yeah, Cadouette. I always say Cadouette because I like the the duet reminds me it's two drugs. <laughs> Cadouette. Okay. Yes, Cadouette has amlodipine and atorvastatin. Isn't that interesting? Very strange combination. I know. It's treating two different disease states <laughs> one pill. Completely different thing. Who would have ever thought it? <laughs> But, um, that's America for you. That's yeah. all common hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. Yeah, are. unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know that's some, definitely something to consider with the tenolol because that's another one just like HCTZ. I think it's a drug that people use because they've always used it. Yeah. So, ugh. Mm. Yep. And there's definitely gonna be people who will argue that and say that we're full of it. And yeah, but that's okay. Speaking of that, we've gotten a lot of really good listener mail recently. Uh, people emailing in and saying very nice things, which we love. We love when people say very nice things. But we really, I don't think we've heard anything negative yet. So my call out for this podcast is if you have any criticisms or negative things, let us know and we'll, you know, consider them. Yes. I'm interested to know. I've been waiting for somebody to just rip us to shreds on something. Yeah. But we have, it just hasn't happened yet. So there's either no one listening for real (laughs) or... Well, we somebody, just, somebody has to say the nice things. So yeah. somebody's out there listening. Apparently nice people. Yeah. No, we've, I've definitely, uh, we've gotten some really cool feedback yeah. from people saying they've used our podcast to help study for boards, yeah. all kinds of stuff. Or binge so. listening to our podcast. I was like, I can't imagine binge listening to my voice. That oh my gosh. Horrible. That would be horrible. Don't do that. Just do one, one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your eardrums will burst. I can't listen to my own voice for about 15 minutes before <laughs> I, I want to turn it off. I know. That's why I have to interrupt you because I can't stand I, listening. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, please email us if uh, you guys have any you know, comments, concerns, um, we would definitely like to hear it or even just overall suggestions for making everything better. Um, we're always trying to improve um, not only the quality, but also the content and making sure that we're providing some kind of value for you guys. Um, but yeah, email us, uh, reach out to us on social media, whatever your preferred action of, uh, communication. Con- of communication is. Smoke signals probably won't reach us very right. well, so don't do that. I don't know. That'd be pretty cool. That would be cool. Yeah. I don't know how to read them though. I, mean, just, I would respond to that. I yeah. would at least say like, hey, what's up? Yeah. I see the smoke. There you go. Hopefully they're local. <laughs> but um, yeah, send us a message, guys. Um, we really appreciate y'all you listening. Um, the comments that uh, and the ratings that you've been giving us on iTunes um, helped tremendously. Thank awesome. you so much yeah. for that. And uh, yeah, let us know if what we can do, what topics we can cover that will be most beneficial. And um, we always, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Y'all have a great one and a good rest of your Memorial Day or mm-hmm. whenever you happen to be listening to this. <laughs> right, which will probably be posted. Well, I don't know. It might be posted tonight. Who knows? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Y'all take it easy. Bye.